Guys, we finished the first 25 episodes. Um, and more. We did some bonus episodes, too. We did. Um, I'm really curious, as we sort of do this retrospective, um, I wanted to know what you guys were, um, sort of like what presumptions you had leading up to uh, the initial production of the season. And I'm also sort of curious what you were most looking forward to tackling or, or learning um, as you were going into them. I don't know. For me, it was... I don't know if I can really say I had expectations so much as that um, I knew this was going to be a different experience than the original run of the show. Um, that there was a lot of stuff I'd seen that was great, and I was going to be excited to go through them again and talk to them with different people. Some good guests, like um, you know, I think my personal high point of this the show was talking high noon with Kenny. Um, and it was a lot of just like seeing the some of the stuff I haven't seen and seeing how I vibed with them and seeing if I could come to the uh recognition of their importance um but yeah, I don't know I mean, I was just excited to watch some movies and talk talk some talk some cinema. I'm always just that's Mike pitched this like the reboot, and I was just like, yeah, we're talking about movies I, I don't care. Sure. Sounds fun. <laughs> I I I'm I'm very pleasantly surprised with with how this turned out. I think the biggest thing and uh Tom may not uh uh acknowledge it outright, but I think he's he shares this sentiment with me that I think the biggest surprise is how many people listen to this. You know? Oh, well, yeah, that. Yeah. Like that's when we started out and I don't want to get into the into the raw numbers, but I think we had the kind of um we had the kind of ambition where we're like, well, maybe if we build up a full season of listeners, we can maybe in a second season get up into the triple digits. And then we achieved that shockingly early on. We have had listeners who have reached out. We have had listeners who uh, engage with us online. We've had listeners uh, from a number of different countries of different age groups. Um, and it just, it never, it, 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 always strikes me every time i i see you know the 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 kind of thing where in the first month of the show we had a number that we hoped to hit by the first week the first week that the episode had been out and now that number we regularly hit within the first day you know um and that's very cool uh because when i yeah when i pitched the show to tom and when i brought kyle on and we started talking about this uh, I think we all kind of got on this page, this idea that we felt like there was a, a sort of a, a vacuum, not not a vacuum. There were people doing it, but there there was a, a a hunger and an interest amongst people to find shows that talked about movies um, in a not just a positive sense, but in a in an informed and kind of uh, academic sense, and really wanted to talk about why they mattered instead of uh, talking about why whoever watched it was smarter than the hundreds of people who thought it was good, you know? And the fact that people are responding to the show as they have is, is, um, is, it's a very cool thing because it means that we weren't just three guys sitting around saying, Oh, I bet people like, you know, would want this. You do, you know, we're not the only people who feel that way, which is very cool. And uh, I think it's also great that we have had so many great guests and people who I think, when we started planning this out, we could not have expected to get. 
you know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of exciting uh, people that we had on, uh, who I think made for great episodes. And yeah, I just the the, the people who showed up uh, to listen, the people who showed up to to speak. It's been a real privilege and a, and a very cool thing to do over the course of uh, a quarantine nightmare. You know, uh, very very cool. I think. I don't remember the exact date, but it's probably close to a year ago that that at least we were talking about this. It might have even we might have even recorded that that like just for us pilot episode by now. It was uh, it was July actually. Well, July we started recording the actual show, but I'm talking about when we did the um, the birds, the birds that we did the demo episode with with Kyle. You were our stand-in guest uh, uh, based around Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. We did a test episode to see like does this show work. Was and then really once we, well, because really wow, well, because it took a couple of months after we decided on that for me to start reaching out to people and wrangling people and mm-hmm. and all that. So, yeah, it was very it was, it was cool. No, this has been this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I we have not recorded uh, other than one that we had to do late. We hadn't recorded an episode in a while, and for a while we were on a real fast clip of back to back to back. And when we were kind of on uh, a recording break. You know, for the listeners, our break is coming up. Uh, well, but after this episode ends, but for us, we were on a break for a while, and I found that I missed it. You know, it was a lot of fun. So this has been a lot of fun to do. But what about you, Kyle? You kind of you were not that involved in in the old podcast Tom and I did before this. How does it feel? You've been with this since the start. How how you feel about it? Um, I I went into this with very with with no expectations in the sense that i wanted to learn as much as i could um when you asked me to produce this show and you had approached me with the concept uh, i loved everything about it uh immediately gravitated towards my um sort of appreciation for art preservation and sort of being able to continue to not only highlight those things but promote them in a way that uh people you know younger than us or people that may not inherently be film people could appreciate and so finding a way to always bridge those communities uh just seemed like a great um opportunity and yes the expectations that i had um you know i mean they're what we've achieved or rather the community we've built uh, based on the the numbers i've seen and again we won't get into specifics but what i've appreciated is from the lack of the three of us have not done a whole lot in terms of promotion ourselves but our community is constant weekly yeah. uh the same people that are tuning in every week are are keep coming back um around the same time and that what was sort of exciting as you mentioned mike to sort of see that that number continue to grow and to be like well maybe and then it's like no that is our new that is our new floor and yeah. to um, have people interacting with us asking questions the types of questions frankly that i had uh that maybe i did not want to uh outright ask uh because uh you know being embarrassed for my ignorance but to understand that or to recognize that those types of um questions and the the, you know that was the type of community we were bringing in uh i really appreciated that so 
Uh, I'm I'm really proud of what what we've got going on here. Um, glad I got to watch some films with you guys. Um, you know, build up our uh, personal relationship in that regard as well too. Because you know, at the end of the day, as, as serious as we all take this, uh, this is a podcast. We should have a little bit of fun with it, and uh, I think we all had a lot of fun uh, producing this. I mean, it kept us in touch. I think we. I think that's the biggest thing. Is that it gave too. us some. That it was, gave us something that... to to do. All right. The first question I want to ask you guys: uh, What's your favorite first time viewing of this list so there wasn't a lot of first time viewings for me um but the one that was a first time viewing for the most part i had seen snippets of it before but uh i hadn't watched it in full and boy oh boy and i wonder if it's gonna be the same answer as tom but boy oh boy the crowd was stunning i had i i did not expect to be so blown away by that it was um a movie that affected me deeply. It affected me so deeply that if you go back and listen to that episode, I'm thoroughly depressed throughout it. <laughs> that is the saddest I have ever sounded on this show. Um, I, I thought the crowd was an incredible film, and I was I was so glad to finally see it. Uh, well, for me, there was there was a few first time viewings. Um, so I'm just gonna kind of do it like we're doing nominations and then pick my winner. So like my top my five was. Uh, <laughs> Sunset Boulevard, Some Like It Hot, Singing in the Rain, Grapes of Wrath, and Best Years of Our Lives. And uh, Grapes of Wrath was my favorite first time viewing of the year. Um, it was my favorite John Ford. I, I loved it a lot. And um, I, I was glad I finally got to see it. Uh, Best Years of Our Lives, close number two. Um, that, that was another one that just hit me right right in the soul. And uh, loved it a bunch. And uh, yeah, Grapes of Wrath, Best Years of Our Lives. Uh, you guys might like them. I don't know. Tom, Tom, it's okay because uh, best years of lo- of our lives uh, is my favorite pick. Um, I had no real premise going into this, uh, and I think it was one of the first, if not the first, new film of this bunch that I had seen, and I loved everything um, about it. Was really blown away the type of story, I guess you could tell in in that time. That was the first, I think, moment for me that I realized, oh. You know, watching these and my preconceived notions going into these types of older films, like I'm, I was ready to open my mind, and it certainly helped having our conversation with Alec and kind of hearing him talk about his perspective only enhanced that um, first viewing for me too. So, the next question I wanted to ask you guys was your most enjoyable rewatch, so a film that you had already seen. Okay, um, yeah, so uh, I, there there was a good bunch of movies I've seen before, um, so the but. Uh, my five are Casablanca, Citizen Kane, High Noon, The Searches, and Vertigo. But I think the one that was the most enjoyable rewatch for me was High Noon. Um, all f- all five of them were movies that I liked more on rewatch. High Noon was the only one I thought was a masterpiece the first time I watched it, and I liked it more the second time. Everything else was like something I thought was really good, uh, but now I appreciate them a lot more. Um, with The Searchers being a, a, a closer second than I thought it would have been. Um, even a year ago before we started the show. And I just kind of just thought it was fine. Uh, my most enjoyable rewatch. I, I, uh, I, I don't have uh, nominations cause that was, we probably should have figured that out ahead of time. If we were doing that or not. I did not think to do that. Um, no worries. So... I prepped for both. That's why I sort of picked a middle of the road answer. So <laughs> our producer it's... knows us. We have to, we, we have to celebrate that, that the, the, the dice roll of Tom is either going to underprepare or overprepare. Yeah. And we love it. Um, most enjoyable rewatch. Mine, uh, I gotta say, is Doctor Strangelove. I I liked Doctor Strangelove when I was a kid, but it was one of those ones where, like, when I looked at this list, 
it certainly wasn't one where you know a lot of people would try and ask us and lead us to the lead up to the show. We didn't do a lot of promotion, but I know for me, I know for me, any time that I did promo for the show, uh, people would ask, oh, well, "What's your favorite?" And I never wanted to answer that. That was kind of my my rule was like, I don't want to like let's not say that because every one of these films has value, and I don't want to single one out or anything like that. Um, but you know, when I get asked that, like Doctor Strange, I've never jumped to the top of my mind. Um, and then we rewatched it for our episode with Connor, and I had so much fun revisiting it that I watched it again. Like maybe two weeks after we did the episode, I went back and I just watched it again because I had so much fun with it. So Doctor Strange was definitely my my favorite, uh, re- my most enjoyable rewatch, and it really brought something out. Mine's pretty much a standard. Uh, it's Citizen Kane. Uh, I uh, initially saw Citizen Kane, obviously in college, so sort of that initial watch of finally kind of crossing that off my bucket list and being like, yes, I can recognize this is a good film. And uh, with a little little, little more experience under my belt, I think, um, you know, going back and revisiting this, especially in the height of, oh, is it actually good or is it overrated as hell? Um, it's, it's, it's not. Um, it's very, very good. Um, it's it's iconic and uh, yeah I, I I enjoyed my rewatch of it. My next question for you guys would be if you could go back in time or in a DeLorean and watch one movie in theaters when it debuted, which would it be? I I gave this a lot of thought this one because um, some of the other ones like most enjoyable rewatch first time viewing I knew right away. Uh, but this one I kind of looked at and I was like, well, this would be a fun question to ask, but I, I wasn't sure I would answer it. And when I thought about it, I've said before, what I love about going to the movies is those times where you're watching something and you just get hit with this awestruck feeling of, oh my God, we can do that. And so I was trying to think like, what would that have been? What movie would give me that the most? And I think it, it has to be Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I would love to have been there to see a thing that should be impossible. Um, and just everything about it from the color to the songs, to the fact that you're just watching a storybook come to life. It, it, it would have felt impossible before that. And I think that feeling would have been absolutely incredible to just see what the energy in that room was. Um, yeah, there's a lot of different ways to take this. Uh, at the end of the day, I kind of just simplified it and thought, what, what's the one that really benefits the most from seeing on the big screen Sans context, sans like historical import, just what's the one that would envelop me the most watching it? And uh, it, it's it's the searches for me, um, that giant widescreen Technicolor filmmaking that John Ford like just kind of perfected and was just like, all right, see you, assholes, I'm done. I just perfected, I just perfected the form. Bye. Um, I just thought, I just think that would have been uh, just an overwhelming sensation and. Um, uh, I, 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 you know, I, what else is there to say? The searches would have is just one of the best looking goddamn movies uh, in this uh, opening class. So, obviously, having the bragging rights of being able to say that I got to see the original Star Wars on the big screen is in and of itself, uh, you know, something I would love to 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 have. Um, but for a historical purpose, I'm always sort of curious if. I want to be there because I want to know if it was as big of this cultural phenomenon as it was, or if it was this slow burn. And I think at the end of the day, it'll probably come down to like, sort of like where you saw it and like a regional thing, sort of what the vibe was of the country. 
But even so, I feel like being able to watch something that has had such a profound impact on my life and truly just once and for all being able to just have that experience one way or the other and sort of determine, yes, this is how we felt about it, or okay, it wasn't this uh, incredible phenomenon right off the gate, so there wasn't like this discrepancy, I think would just be really interesting from my perspective. Next up, we're going to be doing some traditional like awards categories. Uh, in future seasons, when we do these wrap-ups, uh, so everybody knows, I would love to do a best documentary and best animated feature category. Unfortunately, uh, we only had one of each this year, so it kind of just defaults to that. Uh, however, we do have, um, we are doing these categories. We're not doing a, a best picture, um, but if we were, we wouldn't put it in the middle of the categories. I just want everybody to know that. We would put it at the end if we were doing it. Anyway, Kyle, what are we doing for awards categories? Um, we're going to, uh, again, uh, not go the Oscar route and start with best actor first. Is Joaquin Phoenix presenting it? Uh, no, just me, unfortunately, but I'll be just as uh, enthusiastic if you want. No, we're going to do best actor and, uh, everyone's just going to assume we're all going to say Orson Welles and, oh my God, Jimmy Stewart's back from the dead. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so best actor. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so best actor, um, my five. I'm going to go in descending order. Uh, ascending order, I should say. Excuse me. Um, it's going to be Gary Cooper for High Noon, Humphrey Bogart for The One-Two Punch of Casablanca and The Maltese Falcon, Henry Fonda in Grapes of Wrath, Orson Welles in Citizen Kane, and my number one is Jimmy Stewart for The One-Two Puncher, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, oh, and wow. Vertigo. Um, I just think... Um, not to be like a contrarian or anything, but like it's easy to say Orson Welles gave the best performance of this group. But I think the versatility of what Stewart did with these two movies, going from like genuinely sweethearted guy who you don't really mind is beating the shit out of everybody for 10 straight minutes in the movie to this really weird, sweaty creep who like is kind of like the um, the grandfather of incels is um, it's pretty astounding. And I think kind of should be the. Um, the argument anyone has if anyone like tries to denigrate Jimmy Stewart as an actor and just be like, idiot, shut up. Like watch Mr. Smith goes to Washington and vertigo and see what this guy could do. You know, it's funny, Tom, when you mentioned versatility and performances and just different, giving different kind of performances, that's the very same thing that factored into my decision. Uh, but I picked somebody else. Uh, I picked somebody who did deliver uh, several different, radically different performances uh, in films of this season and did it only in one movie uh, because I think undeniably uh, Peter Sellers and Dr. Strangelove had to be my pick for best actor. The The work that he did is is a incredible virtuoso uh, performance as, as Strangelove and Merkin and Muffley and the entire crew. Um, just, just a re- absolutely remarkable work. So funny so well thought out, just absolutely brilliant performance. Peter Sellers is my pick for best actor out of this out of this year. Knock on wood, you can edit this part. I am relieved that we've gone through four categories without any real crossover, uh, because I also had a different best actor pick. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, look, we're probably going to continue this running gag of shitting on the Oscars, but we have to recognize that sometimes they get it right. Um, and as uh, one of only two non-professional actors to win the Best Actor Oscar, um, I felt 
there was just something about Harold Russell's performance mm. in Best Years of Our Lives. Um, obviously, that is a character that is not necessarily himself, but a part of himself is within that. So, like, like his soul, a part of his soul is within that character. And to sort of watch, I think, to loop it back to my favorite first time viewing, uh, the reason. I still think about the best years of our lives as I do is because of Harold Russell's performance. Um, I, again, from a historical context, um, from just the very just unexpected, no real context going into this film, um, he stood out to me. And uh, I like that aspect that there's just as much of a, of a fictional character on that screen as there is um, an actual person. The next category that we have is best actress. Uh, this is an easy one for me. Um, this is not only my favorite actress performance of this year, but I recently endeavored to uh, rank every best actress winning performance uh, in Oscar history based on all the ones that I'd seen. And this is my number one best actress performance of all of those. Uh, it's incredible and iconic and just a, a it's one of those ones that you look at and go, Right, nobody else could have done this. Uh, and believe me, they, they searched far and wide for somebody who could. My, my pick for Best Actress uh, has, has to be Vivian Lee in Gone with the Wind. Uh, just, just one of those things that, that inspired performers for, for decades. Um, just a, a, an absolutely uh, masterful performance in making uh, a performance as a character that you look at and say, oh, I, I'm compelled to keep watching this person. I don't like them. I, at times you're empathetic to her. At times you despise her. Um, it, it, everything she is doing with Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind is incredible. So Vivian Lee is my pick for, for Best Actress. Okay, so for me, my uh, picks are Mary Astor in The Maltese Falcon, Gene Arthur in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Ingrid Bergman in Casablanca, Kim Novak in Vertigo, and my number one winner is Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard. Um, really what else is there to say? It's an unbelievable, iconic performance. Uh, she's kind of the, the, the glue that makes this movie really hold together. It's, she just, uh, you know, I mean, ready for my close up, Mr. I mean, come on, Gloria Swanson fucking rules and this movie rules. And I think leaps and bounds, she's the best of the actresses in this opening salvo of uh, the national film registry. Uh, speaking of, uh, iconic, uh, my pick, I also believe is, uh, incredibly iconic because, uh, regardless of whether you're a fan, uh, or not, um, people, uh, can recognize and respect, uh, the, uh, the power behind Carrie Fisher's performance as Princess Leia in Star Wars. Um, as somebody who just recently over the last couple of months, uh, introduced a friend of mine to Star Wars for the first time, um, and uh, went into it thinking it was just going to be this hokey, goofy, dorky thing and came out of it uh, not only loving every minute of it, uh, but really resonating uh, with uh, Princess Leia and Carrie Fisher's performance, um, you know, continuously asking sort of questions like what type of, you know, was that sort of archetype seen before up to that point? And seeing somebody ask those types of questions and be engaged with both my favorite medium and, you know, a... a, a powerful woman in cinema um uh, she didn't get the recognition she should have you know in during her time uh, but this is me giving uh, carrie fisher the the uh, award she deserves 
my next pick or the next category on our list is for best director. Okay, so best director. Uh, here, here we go with my picks. Uh, number five, William Wyler for The Best Years of Our Lives. Number four, Billy Wilder for Sunset Boulevard and Some Like It Hot. And then number three, Orson Welles for Citizen Kane. Number two, Fred Zinneman for High Noon. And number one, One Two Punch of the Searches and Grapes of Wrath. It's my boy John Ford, that grumpy Irish bastard. Um, he he really made just two unbelievable works in this movie in with these two movies. Um, just the complete control of of storytelling, the complete control of the frame and how the, to work with the the camera and the visual style he had. Going from the um, the black and white four three filmmaking of Grapes of Wrath to the um, widescreen just glorious Technicolor of the Searchers, getting career best performances from pretty much everyone in each of these movies. Um, John Vord just just I mean he, he's he he's like proto Spielberg and he just he just rocked it with these two and it's hard for me to look at any of these others as much as I love High Noon. It's a close second, but John Vore just pulled away with, again, the, 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 the wide variety of these two movies. So my pick, it's funny. This is a really hard one to do because, well, the National Film Registry in its induction year inducted works by all of the, almost all the filmmakers that we consider masters, you know. Mm-hmm. You have Stanley Kubrick, Alfred Hitchcock, John Ford, um... Uh, you have all these people, Charlie Chaplin, you have all these people that are, you're pitting against each other. Uh, and to pull one out is tough. Um, but then I kind of sat on it for a bit and I realized, well, I, I think what stuck out to me is who did the most with on their own. You know, Not that filmmaking is not a collaborative art form, it absolutely is. But if I'm just looking at the director, you know, I, I'm looking at somebody... Uh, you know, I'm taking in all the other factors, and particularly, you know, in the case of Hitchcock, he had been making films for a long while by the time we got to Vertigo, uh, and so on and so forth. But my best director pick is actually somebody on their debut film, uh, somebody who we came to the conclusion in our episode is one of the most extraordinary uh, people to ever live. Uh, my best director goes to Gordon Parks for The Learning Tree, a movie that could have been a lot tamer or a lot more shallow. Uh, and it would have been fine and it would have worked, but that movie just, it was so rewarding on this viewing. And I think it's going to be even more rewarding on further viewings. And it is crazy to me that he had not made films before that and just pulled off such a master stroke. So my best director pick for season one is, is Gordon Parks for The Learning Tree. My pick, best director, uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, might be a curveball. Uh, but it's Robert Flaherty for uh, Nanooka the North. Um, I don't know how a man. I don't know how a man accidentally stumbles onto documentary film as a <laughs> genre, but he did it. Um, and uh, growing up, documentaries easily became one of my favorite genres. And to sort of use this show as an opportunity to figure out where that all traced back from, um, sort of the complexities behind, sort of what makes it a documentary, and sort of those subtleties. Um, that we still kind of go through today. Um, I mean, quite literally as the, the, the godfather of, uh, of documentary films. So yeah, uh, I'm giving him, like many others, the recognition uh, we didn't give him uh, properly because uh, there were no Oscars, but you know. So I'm giving it to uh, uh, Nanook of the North. Next category on our list is Best Cinematography. This is not a surprising one. Um, this is cinematography uh, that did not win an Oscar, 
but should have won an Oscar, and it should have won an Oscar so bad that uh, as of this recording yesterday, uh, a different movie won Best Cinematography for copying this film's cinematography. That's right. Uh, my pick for Best Cinematography has to be Citizen Kane. Yep. You just look at it. <laughs> you just look at it. I, I mean, especially on this viewing, and you just go, yeah, yes. I think I might have, I, I, when we were prepping this, we hadn't done our Kane episode yet, and I was thinking of like a couple things that I'm like, oh, maybe I'll go this way. Maybe I'll do this. And then we rushed and went, no, it's Kane. It's Kane. It, it's best cinematography since it's Kane. Just the, the use of light and shadow, the, the, the camera angles, everything. It's a, it's a, master, it's a visual masterwork. Citizen Kane. It's best cinematography. Okay. So for me, uh, here's my choices. Uh, I expanded them to six so I could have three black and white and three color uh, represented. Oh. Um, so, uh, number six is High Noon, number five is Casablanca, number four is Gone with the Wind, number three is Citizen Kane, number two is Vertigo, and number one, I've been praising it all night, is The Searchers. I think, uh, like I said, the movie is an unbelievable, just visual experience. It's like watching a painting, every frame you could just print out and throw onto a fucking Mondo screen print. Uh, it's just gorgeous. Uh, cinematographer, uh, Winton C. Hawk. Uh, did some amazing work. John Ford knew exactly what he wanted to see on the screen and uh, Hawk really brought it to life. And um, it's maybe, maybe my favorite Western visually after uh, Sergio Leone's uh, Good, the Bad and the Ugly. Um, But yeah, I think searches just punches you right in the fucking eye. This is our, this is our first crossover. So I'm going to parrot a lot of what you've said, Mike, but yes, easily Citizen Kane was, uh, was my pick for best cinematography. Um, I found this quote while I was, uh, just looking up what other people had to say about the cinematography. And the one that stood out to me the most was maybe the lack of light is just as powerful as its presence and, uh, connecting it back just as you said to that second or however many times you've rewatched this film. Uh, I truly did not notice it that first time because it's so subtle and so, purposefully intentional that just blends into the background and so once you know once you're once you stop watching it for the sake of watching it and you realize oh my god how are you like how the hell do you how is something like this so good it's just yeah no question about it um citizen kane easy next up on our list we have best editing okay so Here's my selection for best editing. Uh, Number five, The Searchers. Number four, Citizen Kane. Number three, Star Wars. Number two, Singing in the Rain. And number one, High Noon. Uh, High Noon is a movie that's just a pressure cooker. It's a fucking, it's a Swiss Swiss watch of just precision storytelling. And the editing has to be precise. If one just moment, one beat is just incorrect and just falls flat, then the whole fucking thing falls apart. And, um, it's, I mean, it's one of my favorite movies and Elmo Williams edited it. And it's really just, um, I, I I just think it's an unbelievable, the, the, like the moment when the train finally comes in is just one of the fucking, I mean, one of those moments of of rewatching all these movies this year where you just, your heart gets pumping and you're right there with Gary Cooper and you're like, oh fuck. And, um, yeah, I, I just, high noon. I mean, come on, what else is there to say? My pick for best editing, it's tough. I continue to be torn between two. Uh, and, of course, these are the two I'd be torn between. But it's, I was a thinking, <laughs> it's a toy. No, but yes, it's a toy. Um, uh, we're, we're the only people that quote that, but we quote it constantly. Um, so I was thinking about, you know, with editing, 
everybody thinks of suspense with editing and how important editing is to suspense. But I was thinking about how important it is to comedy. Uh, you know, I've I've certainly watched a fair share of comedies uh, this year, both uh, from this year and from the past, that could have benefited from some very judicious editing. Uh, and I was thinking about how the masters, you know, of, of comedy were, were so good with, with precise editing and knowing when to cut and knowing what to do. Um, and so part of me really wants to say the general. Uh, we had a whole conversation about the, the editing in the general, but my heart goes to modern times. Um, it's a thing where, I mean, that's a, that's a, it's a mostly visual movie and every gag works because of the timing. Every gag works because Chaplin knows exactly when to pull away, exactly what to show you when. He knows when a close-up matters. He knows when a wide shot matters. He knows exactly what to do when. I mean, that is... Uh, I hate to say this about a movie involving gears, but, I mean, that movie is is just clockwork precision. It's it's incredible. Modern Times is my pick for best editing. And now I'm going to parrot Tom because my best editing pick goes to High Noon as well. Um, yeah, yeah. You, you've got you've got 90 minutes of plot. You've got 90 minutes of film. Um, you can't waste a single second, and High Noon doesn't. You know, if we're if we're looking at film as escapism, then High Noon like grabs you by the freaking coat, th- locks you in a freaking chair, and goes, "Look here, this shit's gonna happen, and you need to sit here and watch it. There's nothing you could do about it." And you just watch, and you're waiting there until this climactic moment, and it's just it is far more suspenseful than a lot of the contemporary stuff we see now, and was probably my probably on par with best years of our lives in terms of first time viewing and the only reason i didn't pick it is because i thought uh well that's right it's not a first time pick for you tom so i would have picked that but anyway i digress uh that uh high noon was easily one of my favorite uh new selections and the editing had a lot to do with that next on my list uh here is best song best best song i mean that you know there are a surprising amount of songs uh in this despite us well, no, we had we had a musical, uh, you know. But the, you know, uh, there's part of me that would want to go with some of the songs from Snow White or Singing in the Rain. I do love Singing in the Rain very much. Um, but it's funny. There's a song that I think is just undeniable, and it's 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 an obvious answer. But I have to say it. It's like um, recently I rewatched the Muppet movie for a piece, and there's something about when Kermit is singing Rainbow Connection. And you're just watching it, and even though nothing's happening, the it's not moving the plot. It's not. Uh, there's not a crazy elaborate dance number. You still just you're just drawn in. You just can't stop watching. Um, and that is uh, most exemplified by my pick for best song, which is obviously it's "Over the Rainbow" from Wizard of Oz. It's a, it's a sequence that works so well. It's an incredible song. It is. Um, it speaks to a very deep uh understanding of longing but can be understood by even the smallest child in the same way that something like rainbow connection does and i i just think that i it just manages it's a song that plays really well to you when you're four years old and watching it and it's a song that still hits just as hard as an adult so over the rainbow is my pick for best song uh yeah, I didn't do any nominations for this one. It's over the rainbow. Um, I don't like the movie, but you know, the song you can't you can't you can't mess with the song. Um, it's great. It's iconic. It's lasted this long for a reason. And I mean, 
who am I to argue with at least the song? I'll argue about the movie the rest of my goddamn life, but the the song, what are you going to do? I anticipated this, so I tried hard to come up with an alternative. So um, Kyle picked the gibberish song that Chaplin sings at the end of Modern Times. That is exactly what I did. <laughs> Because it is the first time that we hear Charlie Chaplin's voice. And again, Ooh. to connect that to my feeling of watching Star Wars for the first time. If Chaplin is as prevalent as he is in his time, and to hear this man, this 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 giant of on, on screen speak for the first time, even in this ridiculous gibberish, I have to imagine just filled that entire room with some sort of glee or just like gasp of, oh my god, he spoke. Um, and you know, for that reason and to sort of preserve that moment, I, I feel like it's, yes. And just, again, for the sake of just trying to do anything that's not over the rainbow. Um, wow. The, the nonsense song. Uh, I was kidding. I was making yeah. a joke. Yeah. Wow. No, no, it actually, I no, right. I was dead. No, I was dead serious. No, I, yeah, no, I was totally 100% serious. I, I legit uh, picked that to try to uh, to come up with a different approach. I, I and I genuinely mean that too, though. If I didn't just come up with the BS reason, I think for historical context, it's important. Um, yes. So uh, another one. Uh, speaking of song and music, uh, our next category is best score. I mean, okay. do we all just want to say it at the count of three? <laughs> right. Ready. Here we go. I mean. <clears throat> Ready? Wait, no, no. Tom, Tom, Tom has nominations. Let Tom do his nominations. Oh, oh he does? All right. Okay. All right. Nominations. Citizen right. Kane. The Searchers. Yep. Singing uh-huh. in the Rain. Vertigo. Uh-huh. And one, two, three. Star Wars. Star Wars. Wars. I mean, yeah, okay, great. Okay. Moving on. Literally, it's perfect. Literally, on. literally, literally, my only note in here is John Williams, <laughs> Star Wars. Yep. Uh... John, Williams, John Williams came onto Star Wars and he just cucked the entire <laughs> cinematography fucking union. And it was just like, yeah, Which guys, is... I just... I just fucked your entire. I just fucked all your wives right now. Why did he cuck the cinematography union? He's a composer. Uh, God damn it! My mind is mush. The the composer. We were up really late with the Oscars. I'm tired. Oh God! He cucked the entire composers union. Look, some of you were Anthony Hopkins and I were peacefully asleep uh, at uh, eleven. Well, that's because that's because you get your bottle early in the night. <laughs> and, and, and Shannon rocks you to sleep. <laughs> oh, Danny boy! All right. Anyway, um, next category we've got best costume design. You know, there. I'm sure there are some more radical picks. I'm sure there are people who could make the argument for. Well, look at Kim Novak's outfits in Vertigo and those wonderful bras that are designed in the office or some something like that. I, I'm sure there's an argument to be made for that. There's an argument to be made for Star Wars having to invent a whole new look. Um. You know, there's there's arguments to be made for that. There's arguments to be made for the iconic look of uh, Ethan and the Searchers. There's arguments to be made for that. But God damn, it's gone with the wind. Like, you can't help but look at that and be like, right, that is the, the, the dresses are incredible and spawned a thousand Barbies. Uh, everything. I mean, just everything looks the, the the work done on the costumes in that film and the detail is incredible. I mean, yes. Is it a four-hour showcase of Vivian Lee in various incredible colors? Yeah, it's great. The costume work in that movie is absolutely incredible. And I'm a person who normally hates when the Oscars honor a period piece over something more inventive. Uh, I usually get a little annoyed when it's like, 
oh, well, this person had to come up with how aliens dress, but this person looked at pictures from the 40s. But at the same time, like, just, God, God it's such a knockout. Every every outfit, every look in Gone with the Wind is incredible. It's got to be best costume design. Number five, The Searchers. Number four, High Noon. Number three, Casablanca. Number two, On the Waterfront. Number one is Star Wars because they made an entire goddamn different galaxy that felt lived in, felt real, felt tangible. And we're still fucking looking at that shit to this day. I mean, from other sci-fi movies that have tried to be Star Wars and failed to Star Wars movies that have tried to be Star Wars movies and failed. (laughs) Star Wars is just tech on that. Every technical level is hard to argue with. Um, That would have been, that was my go-to. I try to challenge myself there too. And I decided to, uh, go with what I thought would be an obvious answer for Mike, but I went with Wizard of Oz. Um, mm, I went with Wizard yeah. of Oz. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody, obviously, especially my dad, um, it's one of the few films uh, that I can actually talk to him about on this list. Um, but uh, regardless of who you talk to, everybody says it, it, it's the moment that that film goes from black and white to color. That is just this, it just takes your freaking breath away. And for me, I've always felt that that color alone um, while an effective tool uh, did not could not work alone um, without something bold and just beautiful to look at, and the color alone without like you know the complement you know that entire world blowing up as it is and just bursting with color and all of the munchkins in this world very much in the way uh, that Star Wars designed an entire galaxy. Um, it just bursts onto the scene with life, and without those costumes that sort of take you into an incredibly different world like i feel like that movie just sort of doesn't really work or feels cheap in 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 comparison um so that's my pick is wizard of oz next category we have on our list is best art direction which i uh, correct me if i'm wrong mike this is the original uh uh, term for production design right yes okay Number five, Citizen Kane. Number four, The Searches. Number three, Singing in the Rain. Number two, Vertigo. And number one, it's a technical category. It's going to Star Wars. They made an entirely new universe, and it felt tangible. It felt real. We're still dealing with it today. And a blah, 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 blah. I said it before. It's Star Wars. I don't know. Uh, it fucking... Goddamn, like, look at that movie. It's 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 there. It exists. That's fun. So, Tom, you picked uh, what is the newest movie in the original class, right? Yes. 77 Star Wars. So I went the complete opposite direction because my pick for best art direction is Intolerance. Mm. Uh, I think that when you look at the... I mean, the fact that it had to create four different time periods uh, and the work that had to go into that to just... to replicate four different eras and the fact that so much of it is still so impressive today. You know, there are so many older films that you look at and go, oh, well, that's obviously a flat. Oh, that's obviously... That's obviously... I mean, the guy built the giant elephants that that stayed there until they decayed. It's it the art direction and is is what makes intolerance a spectacle. Like that's that's its most notable feature, and I felt like I had to recognize that just the amount of work and craft that went into creating those four different time periods in intolerance. I think it's absolutely remarkable. So that's that's my pick for best art direction. I had the same approach because i went back and forth between star wars and intolerance and from a purely technicality award and from the fact that i had already given so many awards to star wars up to this point um uh while i I do not respect the man uh, i do have to respect uh the three hour uh 
dense epic of a modern of a blueprint for the modern block blockbuster that he gave us. Um, and so, yes, I have to uh, I have to give the best art direction to D.W. Griffith and Intolerance. You didn't have to say I just said Intolerance. I could have pretended that he wasn't part of it. I was just like, let's just not say it. Oh, let's well, just fine. be like that movie di- art directed itself. It's fine. Uh, last last uh, category uh, for uh, this uh, list is our best visual effects category. Is this another one where we should just do a one, two, three, or did somebody have a radical pick here? I don't think so. I think I feel pretty good about the one, two, three. Yeah, okay. I don't know. Uh, you, 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 right, the other guy right. that just went intolerance for fucking art direction. That's, Are you the one with the, the radical that, pick? That, no, that's, no, that's, okay. I'm absolutely Ready? not. There's one right, answer. Ready? Here All we right. go. Three, two, one. Star Wars. Maltese Falcon. Yeah, what? There you go. <laughs> No, it's Star Wars. Yes, I'm fucking with you. It's Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. I I felt like that one was so obvious. I wasn't sure if it was even worth including, but I was like, let's just set a precedent for future years. Well, I mean, um, like, yeah, okay. Yeah, Wizard of Oz, great effects. Yeah, good job, guys. Citizen Kane, you know, some good optical effects and camera tricks, models and all that stuff. But I mean, come on, Star Wars. What, yeah. what, what are you doing even coming to this game? You're bringing a fucking, you're bringing a goddamn Nerf gun to a knife fight. All right, so now what we're going to do, everybody, uh, we're going to do a quick thing real quick before we look at next season, uh, which is we have, at the end of every episode this season, uh, Tom and I have made our picks for the registry. Uh, That's not just us saying things that should be in there. Uh, You, everybody, has the ability to submit films to the National Film Registry. Uh, The Library of Congress allows uh, the public to submit nominations, and uh, the ones that receive overwhelming support will be factored in in future decisions, I can't imagine that something like the Dark Knight getting in was not, at least in some way, because of a large outcry of public support. Um, so all of those films that we picked, the films I picked over the course of 25 episodes, the films Tom picked over the course of 25 episodes, uh, we are actually going to submit on behalf of the show as our nominations uh, for the National Film Registry. Uh, of course, we have to make some tweaks here and there, and you'll find out how we're doing that. But uh, I am going to go ahead and read my 25 for uh, one last time. We're going to read them all, at, you know, go through them all at once. And then Tom will uh, give us his. And uh, then we will talk about how uh, one or two more might be making our nominations list. Um, so these, starting from our very first episode all the way through to our most recent, uh, are my picks to go into the National Film Registry. I selected Boogie Nights, Hannah and Her Sisters, Technological Threat, The Lone Ranger 1938 Serial, Moulin Rouge, Iron Man, Bamboozled, The Dixon Buffalo Bill Films, Terms of Endearment, The Little Mermaid, Blue Velvet, Street Fight, Tongues Untied, Batman, A Clockwork Orange, Just Another Girl on the IRT, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Crazy Cat Bugologist, Thief, The Wizard of Oz 1917, Watermelon Woman, Huelga, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, and Errol Morris's Conversation with Donald Trump about Citizen Kane. Those were the 25 films that I picked to go into the registry. Tom? Alrighty, my picks are Barton Fink, Rolling Thunder, Matawan, Man on Fire, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Blade, Casino, Fort Apache, They Live, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, Brick, Nixon, 
F for Fake, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, Failsafe, Crooklyn, The Blues Brothers, Magnolia, Fat City, Brazil, Blood Simple, The Hired Hand, The Age of Innocence, The Train, and There Will Be Blood are my 25. Now, you guys uh, might have noticed, for those of you who've been paying attention, that two of the films we named, one of my picks for the registry and one of Tom's picks, uh, were selected for the National Film Registry this past year. We obviously recorded those episodes before that selection was made. So we had a question in front of us, which is, well, what do we do? Uh, I had a Clockwork Orange. That's already in, so we're not going to submit that. Tom had the Blues Brothers. That's already in. We're not going to submit that. So what should we do? So we decided uh, that is where Kyle comes in. Uh, Kyle is going to pick the films that fill in those two slots in our registry nominations. So, Kyle, what two films do you think should be in the National Film Registry? This first one's an obvious one for anybody who knows me and for those who don't. Uh, I, I I live and breathe everything Spider-Man, and we need to get Sam Raimi's Spider-Man into the National Film Registry, um, much in the way that I believe uh, Christopher Reeve's Superman is in the registry. Uh, I believe that Spider-Man came at a time where me as a, a growing up post 9-11 and just the country sort of needed a, a, a symbol, you know? And I resonate so much, I think, of my ideology and my passions and sort of like what I sort of cater to kind of growing up all stemmed from my initial viewing of uh, Spider-Man. That confusion and that I think we all sort of felt and feeling this sense of hope come from this uh, extraordinary, amazing uh, character. Um, yeah, I, I think as much as I appreciate the Dark Knight being on that registry, uh, I think uh, Spider-Man, tr- for, traditions, for tradition's sake, uh, should be uh, on the film registry now. Uh, so that is my first pick. The second pick is a little unorthodox. And um, I'd like to say it's a l- probably more of a reflection of what I've learned um, working on the show with you guys, um, because it's not a traditional pick. Um, it's not one, I think, that I think stands out um, as inherently being valuable. Um it's a short film. Uh, it's only about 19 seconds long. I can give you the transcript here real quick. And if you want, you can uh, let me know if you guys are familiar. All right. So here we are in front of the uh, elephants. And the cool thing about these guys is that is that they have really, really, really long um, trunks. And that's, uh, that's cool. And that's pretty much all there is to say. Um, that is uh, Javed Karim. That's the co-founder of YouTube, and that is the first YouTube video uploaded to the site, Me at the Zoo. Um, YouTube is not the first of its kind in terms of video sharing, uh, but it has rapidly evolved the way we communicate and interact with one another. Uh, and just this past Friday was the 16-year anniversary of that upload. Um, and it's so crazy because as somebody that grew up with YouTube, there are so many iconic videos on that platform that stand out as the best of the best, as greatest of all time on that platform. Me at the zoo so rarely ever becomes the subject of that conversation. Um, and it's a lot of what I realized um, when approaching this as 
kind of uh, approaching the work of the National Film Registry, recognizing that when they mean film, it is not inherently a narrative film. Um, it is stuff that is worthy of preserving, uh, whether it's your favorite film, whether it is worthy of historical context. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm hoping that uh, we can tackle the more obscure silent films and newsreels. And yes, the music video, if we somehow manage to continue producing uh, the show that long to talk about it. Um, but as we continue to sort of question the future of cinema now, um, and sort of what preservation will will look like. I think it is important for us to start to recognize um, digital video and internet content um, as a legitimate source um, worthy of preserving. And while the complications and the political uh, turmoil of sites like uh, YouTube uh, continue to uh, be uh, put into question um, for historical context. Uh, I believe that the uh, first YouTube video, Me at the Zoo, uh, should be inducted into the National Film Registry. This may not get kept in, but I, I want you to hear something, Kyle. Okay? Sure. sure. I want you to listen carefully. Okay. Do you know what that sound was, Kyle? I don't know what that sound was. Oh, that was the sound of me angrily, very angrily, scribbling out on the list of what films I would pick next season. Me very angrily scribbling out what was next to The Great Train Robbery, which was me at the zoo, because I thought, I'm going to be so fucking clever, and I'm going to make this impassioned argument about the first YouTube video. And when you... And I was like, this is such a clever idea. I'm going to sound so smart when I do it next year. And um, and then the minute wow. you went, so these are the elephants. I just went, motherfucker. Oh, and as soon as what I said a... it too, I could feel it. And honest to Kyle, God, what wow. What a good choice. What a, wow. what a, what a bravo. Honest Honest to God, because what I because what I have found looking at observing you guys, right? And Mike, of course, you bring a lot of historical context to these older films that our audience theoretically may or may not be, uh, you know, familiar with, right? And yet, uh, as producer, Mike, the question I sort of have a conflict with is: How do we gravitate towards people that are younger that that mm -hmm. care one way or another? How do we get them to care? And part of my rationale behind it was, well, you start by legitimizing the media that they consume. Yep. You yep. start by recognizing that, yes, a, a YouTube video you know, may not be in, at the same quote-unquote quality as something like a Charlie Chaplin film, but its contribution to our society, for better or for worse, is important. And once you start actually recognizing that, then people are going to start getting involved. It's another reason I hope that, yes, while I pinch and moan about Spider-Man almost every week we talk about this show, because of the Dark Knight selection, I now feel emboldened to actually make a, 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 a passion, passionate cry to try to get it on this year. So, you know, just trying to get people involved, you know. Bra yes, bravo. We are on to our last little step, which is we are going to look ahead uh, to next season. When is next season coming out, you may wonder? We don't know. You'll know <laughs> when we know. When it's ready. Um, yeah, you'll know when we know. Um but we do have some tentative plans. We have some people we've talked to. We have some people we know we want to talk to. Um, and it's certainly something we're all passionate about. 
Um, and we are, we are, I think I can, I speak only for myself when I say legitimately bummed, uh, that we are going on what for you guys is a hiatus. Uh, for us, it's not because we're going to be working to bank up episodes and, 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 uh, and, and try and build, uh, the next season. So we'll be hard at work, even though you won't be hearing us. Um, uh, and I will just say before we start talking about season two, you can help us make season two better in all future seasons um if you've been listening to the show especially been listening for a long time uh we do ask that you guys can help us out we are going to have a little survey uh that people can do it's 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 like a couple you know it's it's a real quick thing uh just take a couple minutes and you can let us know what you think of the show uh what you've enjoyed what we could do better and it will help us build a better show going forward it'll be in the show notes um we really appreciate you guys taking the time to do it let your voice be heard. Let us know what we could be doing. Uh, and with that, what's going to happen is I am going to read off the films that we are covering next season on the show. The second induction class at the National Film Registry. Uh, I've seen them all, so we're going to hear Tom and Kyle's thoughts on what is ahead. Here are the films that we will be covering next season. All About Eve, famous Betty Davis Best Picture winner. All Quiet on the Western Front, another Best Picture winner and one of the most stirring anti-war films of all time. Uh, Bringing Up Baby, the delightful comedy with Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn that was just inducted into the Criterion Collection. Uh, A very stirring uh, drama that I think a lot of our listeners haven't seen, uh, but I look forward to them seeing it. It's uh, the William Wyler film with Walter Houston, Dodsworth. Very powerful drama. Duck Soup, the, uh, the beloved Marx Brothers comedy. Fantasia, the Disney classical musical epic. Uh, The Freshman, one of Harold Lloyd's most revered comedies. The Godfather, the film of the 70s. Uh, The the movie that defined the mafia movie. The Great Train Robbery, the very first action film. Harlan County, USA, an incredible documentary about labor dispute. Uh, How Green Was My Valley, uh, John Ford's Stirring uh, coming of age drama that, as we all know, beat Citizen Kane for Best Picture. It's a Wonderful Life, the perennial holiday classic. Uh, Killer of Sheep, Charles Burnett's uh, powerful, uh, powerful drama that was lost for so long due to music rights. Love Me Tonight, a Maurice Chevalier musical. Meshes of the Afternoon, which is Maya Darren's uh, short experimental film. Ninochka, the great Ernst Lubitsch comedy. Primary, a documentary about John F. Kennedy's primary run. Raging Bull, the Martin Scorsese boxing drama with uh, the incredible performance by Robert De Niro. Rebel Without a Cause, the definitive James Dean film. Uh, Red River, uh, one of the quintessential westerns. The River, a a documentary uh, about uh, the Mississippi River made by uh, documentary uh, legend Pari Lorenz. Sullivan's Travels, uh, one of the uh, one of the great uh, comedies about comedy. Top Hat, the legendary Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers uh, film. Uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, of course. Uh, the the Humphrey Bogart classic. And A Woman Under the Influence. Uh, that's right, we will be talking John Cassavetes next season. Uh, out of those 25 films, how many have each of you guys seen already? I have seen seven of these. I have only seen four. Uh of the ones that you've seen, which ones are you most excited to talk about next season? Oh, boy. I mean, listen, I'm Italian. I'm always ready to, to fucking revisit and talk about The Godfather. 
Um, I'm an angry guinea. I'm always ready to talk about Raging Bull. Um, love me some John Houston, so I'm ready to dive back into the treasure of the Sierra Madre, as always. Love, love talking John Houston. Um, it's a Wonderful Life movie always fucking eviscerates me, rips my heart out, and throws it back in my face, and, and it makes me cry like a baby. Um, and because I love tough guy movies and tough guy filmmaking, I can't wait to watch A Woman Under the Influence again. Um, you know, just got to represent tough guy cinema and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great, it's a good list and, uh, can't wait to get to them. I'm excited for, uh, Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, I saw it, I think about like five or six years ago, probably just as I was starting to really get serious about movies. Um, and I remember enjoying it, but maybe not fully appreciating it. So I would be curious to see what i uh, uh what i discover on my uh second rewatch um it's a wonderful life uh my high school history teacher showed it to me for the first time for a you know i think it was around christmas so i have fond memories of that movie um again the godfather is a godfather enough said um the most uh, i think i'm curious for is fantasia if only because i remember seeing it so young and uh, it's it is revered as such an epic tale, and I don't remember a lot about it. And maybe because it's just less, maybe like a collection of different. Uh, because I was so young, I didn't like comprehend that. Like, oh, these are all different, you know, action scenes and whatnot, and whatnot. One whole cohesive film. Like, I might be able to appreciate it a little bit more. But yeah, I would like to know what adult me thinks of Fantasia. And. Of the ones that you haven't seen, I did give a little synopsis for each. Of the ones you haven't seen, which film are you most intrigued by? Oh, most intrigued by. Um, well, Sullivan's Travels I'm most intrigued by. Um, everything I've heard about it's great. I mean, you know, it's a National Film Registry, so no surprise there. But it sounds like it's right up my alley. Um, I'm excited to get to Harlan County, USA. It sounds like a documentary that's really going to tie the go for a lot of things that I'm interested in. Uh, like it'll be a good double feature with, um, Matawan, which I uh, suggested to be entered into the, uh, film registry, uh, all quiet on the Western front sounds again, right up my alley. Uh, John Ford's got how green is my Valley. So got to represent there. Um, I think the one I'm most intrigued by though is red river. Um, I'm just always interested in diving into Westerns and seeing more Westerns and expanding that vocabulary. Cause there's so many and so many different, you know, eras and uh, countries and just so many different uh, styles to it. And uh, I really just can't wait to get to that one, which is, um, you know, one of the most lauded uh, Westerns that I haven't seen. I'm curious about primary. Um, my uh, dad and I uh, share a mutual appreciation of John F. Kennedy. Uh, and I mentioned that primary was going to be uh, on our list next season. And even he was confused uh, uh, so may not have been familiar with it. So I'm hoping that when we tackle that, I can sort of share that moment and use that perspective uh, with him. Uh, so that'll be nice. Um, uh, Raging Bull is a, a blemish on my record, uh, so I'm glad that I finally uh, get to uh, not only watch it, but then get to uh, tell Tom what I think about it because uh, I imagine I'm gonna I'm gonna love it. Uh, and then I would say the one I'm most intrigued by, for the reason Mike mentioned, is the Great Train Robbery. The Great Train Robbery, for it being the first action sequence, sort of connecting it to sort of. Uh, I resonate a lot with that uncharted two train sequence, but like that sort of that moment of, Oh, this is what we can do. 
um, and uh, you know, being able to tackle that from a historical context. Well, that's what lies ahead in Season 2. We are looking forward to doing it, and we really hope that you guys will join us for it. Uh, the people who have been listening, the people who have been reaching out, uh, have been so great. We're so grateful for it, and we hope we hope that you uh, stick around. Uh, this has been a lot of fun to do, and and it's it's really helped get us through a really dark time. So uh, we hope we helped you a little bit. Thank you guys so much for listening. Take the survey uh, if you can, and we look forward to coming back for season two. Thank you guys so much. See you guys on the other side. I have a plan. Monsieur!